Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles out and turn to Zechariah chapter 12. We're going to look at the entirety of this chapter and then the first six verses of chapter 13. So we're going to handle tonight Zechariah chapter 12, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 6 of chapter 13. And maybe you've already noticed this as we've been journeying through uh, this book together. That in the first half of the book, as we were seeing these visions of the coming kingdom, remember Zechariah had a long night before him. He had vision after vision after vision. It was sleepless in a lot of ways. And it seemed as if each vision had a particular theme that went along with it. And so for the first you know, handful of chapters, we were, were seemingly swimming through, through different themes of what the kingdom of Christ will be like, the prosperity of the kingdom, looking at historical context where uh, Zechariah is prophesying about one day soon Jerusalem will be reestablished, but even in a greater way, the new Jerusalem will be reestablished. And then we had that sermon, actually two sermons, there in the middle of the book where uh, Zechariah preached that hard message of judgment, but also held out the grace of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ who is soon to come. And those two sermons prepared us for a thematic change. Now we've moved not from the kingdom of God, we're not talking about the kingdom of God, but we're actually talking about the coming king that the Lord, the Father in heaven will send, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so as we've been journeying through this second half of the book, we haven't been handling what seems to be different themes as we move through different chapters, but actually in this second part of the book there's two major themes before us. And the first that we handled together was the shepherd of the sheep. And actually that will continue on, overlap with this second theme that will be on the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, or on that coming day. In, in chapters 12 through the rest of the book, that will actually be discussed or mentioned over a dozen times. I think I read something like 15 or 16 times. This day of the Lord will be uh, highlighted for us. And, and we have to go ahead and get our bearings even before we read. Because when Zechariah says the day, concerning that day or the day of the Lord, Zechariah is not speaking of a literal 24-hour day. He's actually talking about an era of time. And, and we'll know this. This will become very clear to us as we read chapters 12 and 13 because what we'll see in all of these chapters is he's prophesying about Christ and His coming and His death and His resurrection, His ascension, His outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All that will be before us even in chapter 12. And he'll even talk about how Christ will come again in His final Glory, And so we know that he cannot be talking about all these things in a literal 24-hour day. And so he's talking about a, a time frame, if you will. An era that we might call an era of the free offer of the gospel. And I know my Dylan thick accent's coming out. I'm saying era as E-R-A, not error. And so I'll put a hard R on there if I'm trying to say error. But era... There's an era that is before us that is the free offer of the gospel. And you would say, well, Matt, that sounds familiar to us. 
And it should, because we're living in the day in which Zechariah is prophesying about here in Zechariah 12 and 13. We have the day of the Lord, or the day of the free offer of the gospel, meaning that we are living in between Christ's first coming and His second coming, that millennial kingdom that He is establishing, and which we'll talk about here in just a few moments. And so I want you to think about day in those terms, not not a single 24-hour day, but an era of time in which the prophet Zechariah is prophesying about. And, and you probably should ask a question there. Let me just, before we even read, carry on for a moment. You should ask a question there. Why would Zechariah write a day if he doesn't mean a literal day? Well, I think it's a play. Remember, prophecies and this prophesying can come to us in many different illustrations and uh, many different picture forms. We saw that in the first half of the book, all these pictures that were unfolding before us. And it's a play on words. Because what we use in this era of the free offer of the gospel are phrases like this. Today is the day of salvation. We say things like, If today you will hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. We will say, today is the appointed time. Today is the time that we need to get serious about the gospel and serious about walking with our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so Zechariah is actually using, he's playing on the words that will be used in this era to call sinners to salvation. To call sinners to faith. He's calling us, as he talks about this day, he's calling us to be diligent about our business with our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so we are living in the day in which Zechariah talks about here because the gospel is being freely offered and from the four corners of the earth, the Lord is growing His kingdom. So with all that in mind, Uh, understanding how Zechariah is using day, let us read uh, again all of chapter 12 and then the first six verses of chapter 13. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The sage of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, 
while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day... The morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad, Ramon, and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, he will not be put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soul, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house is from my friends. This is the word of God, holy, inspired, and authoritative. May he write us in truths, uh, its deep truths upon our hearts. Well, admittedly, we handled a lot of different things there. And it seems as if there is a lot of confusion maybe, as we've journeyed through chapter 12 and then the first verses of chapter 13 together. But I hope to summarize these things, I want to point out three things to you. And it's all a work of the Lord Himself, what God will do. And the first thing I want you to see is what God will do for us. What God will do for us. It's there in verses 1 through 9. What God will do for us, verses 1 through 9. One of the things in which we see unfolding before us in verses 1 through 9 is these kind of cosmic, uh, seemingly uh, extravagant promises that the Lord is, is declaring to His people through the prophet Zechariah. It, it's expansive, it's, it's far-reaching, but at the same time it's conclusive and absolute. And so if you put yourself in the historical context of Zechariah is preaching to a you know, a, a belittled people in Jerusalem, they're thinking, this is 
far beyond our human understanding. And maybe when we read the first nine verses, you're saying all these things are far beyond my human understanding. But the first thing that Zechariah establishes here to help us understand that it's okay if it's far beyond our human understanding is simply that the God who spread out the heavens is going to do something remarkable. Look back at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So he's speaking concerning his people. Thus declares the Lord. Notice in all capital letters, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant promise name of God. It's the same as we talked about this morning, if you were with us, Jehovah. And it's this idea that Yahweh, the God of His promises, who is sworn only by His name, for there is nothing greater to swear upon, is the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's what's being established for us. He has stretched out the heavens and founded the earth. Not only has He found the earth, but He formed the spirit of man within Him. So He created man and He breathed spiritual life into Adam's lungs. We know that story that unfolds before us in Genesis 1 and 2. So he says the God who has done all of this is the God who is going to make Israel great again. And remember, it's much bigger than historical Jerusalem. It's much bigger than historical Judah. It's much bigger than the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel even. This is far grandeur than anything that could be imagined. Because what's being established here in verse 2, behold, remember I'm a big fan of that word. It means wake up, pay attention to what's about to happen. It says, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And look at verse 3. It says, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So he's saying, what I'm about to do for my people is far beyond what history can even imagine. And the way that I'm going to do it is the same way in which I've created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to build for myself a people, since we're living in the times of the free offer of the gospel, the New Testament, people of God, we can say, I'm going to build for myself a church that shall never be destroyed. Now, think about the words of Jesus there. As He's talking to His, to his disciples, as He's looking at Peter, talking about the confession in which Peter just made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes, yes, you're right, Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And He even further goes along, He says, I'm going to build my church in the very presence of my enemies, and they're going to try to come after me. And they're going to try to destroy my people and my church, but they will indeed fail. That's exactly what's coming here before us in verse 2 and 3. I'm going to make my church so great that it's going to be like a huge stone that if you tried to pick it up, if you tried to move it, you're going to hurt yourself. And actually, all the nations will actually try to move the stone, and yet, it will destroy them. I don't know if y'all ever have watched the world's strongest man competitions on TV. I'm a, 
I, I get on these little stretches where I love watching these things because if you've ever watched it, they have to do the atlas stones. And it's these huge stones that weigh 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 pounds. And by the time they get to the 400 and 500 pound stone, you see these huge men that threw this 100 pound stone like it was a paperweight up on this pedestal. They get down on these 500 pound, 400 pound stones and they begin to pick it up. And all of a sudden when they can't pick it up, what's the first thing they grab? Their backs. They've hurt themselves. They cannot do it. It's impossible for them to do it. And that's exactly the picture that should be, that should be being painted in your head, I guess we can say. Because the nations are going to be like this strong man who tries to move the boulder, who tries to move the stone, and yet they will not be able to. And yet the, the illustration of what the Lord will do for the church continues on. Because he actually says in verse 6 that on that day, not only will they be this huge stone that cannot be moved, but they will be like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. Now the picture here that's being painted for us is something like a forest fire. Something like a forest fire where you throw a, a fiery pot Actually, one of the uh, commentators I was reading says it's something like a, uh, one of those Mostov cocktails, the glass bottle with the gasoline in it, with the, the rag that they light, and once they throw it, it erupts and it catches all the woods on fire. That should be the picture that is being painted here because the Lord says what He's going to do is He's going to cause a flame to carry out through the forest. He, he's going to take a flaming torch among the sheaves, dried up wheat, and he's going to throw around that flaming torch and it's going to consume the fields. And so not only will the kingdom of God be a kingdom that cannot be shaken, nor can it be moved, but it will be one that spreads like wildfire to the four corners of the earth, it's saying. That there will be nothing that can that can stop the, the, the flaming pot from consuming the wood. So there'll be nothing that stops the torch from consuming the sheaves. And that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 1. That the gospel of God has come to a people and the kingdom of Christ is always growing, always increasing, always bearing fruit. And so the picture here for us as we think about these two things is that we have an enduring church. A church that is always ready, always steadfast, always, even though they are facing hard-pressed persecution from the world, they are always invincible. And yet at the very same time, it's always expanding. It's always expanding. It's always growing. And that's a remarkable promise, I think. Because oftentimes, when we get overwhelmed with the sin-filled world in which we live, we begin to ask questions. Well, can the church make it? Can the church survive? Can A hope and a prayer, right, will we'll keep the church in America or in the world, whatever it might be. 
But the promise here of the gospel is it's actually going to continue on. And and while the world might be more and more sin-filled, and while the world might be getting more and more dark, even it seems that we might be at its darkest point, the flame of the church is roaring. And the nations rising against it, trying to move it, trying to destroy it, are really just hurting themselves. That is the picture that's being painted here for us. But, But I love how the promise keeps going. I love how the promise keeps going. If you look at verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. Zechariah, do you mean King David? Yes, that's exactly who he means. Zechariah, do you mean the greatest king in the history of Israel? Yeah, that is who he means. The one who had all of the greatest earthly riches that he could imagine, the one who had, you know, all the spiritual riches that one could imagine, a man who was after God's own heart. David, yes, Zechariah, that is who you mean. And so I was reminded when I read that phrase this past week of Francis Schaeffer, because Francis Schaeffer often said, in the church of Jesus Christ, there are no little people. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is no little people, even the most feeblest member of Christ's church is going to be like the great King David. But look on. Remember, we're not not focusing on the kingdom, even though it's really easy to, in verses 1 through 8, to think about this grand coming kingdom of Christ that will one day soon meet its consummation. Verse 9 helps us focus in. And on that day, or sorry, at the end of verse 8 and then verse 9, the feeblest among them shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Remember what I said, verses 1 through 9 is all about. This is what God himself is going to do. How can the church of Christ be an enduring and ever-growing church? It's because the Lord Jesus leads us into battle. It's because the Lord Jesus is the angel of the Lord. That phrase has been before us in the prophecy of Zechariah already. And so it's Jesus, the great David's greater son, we sing together, that leads us into battle, who causes us to be ever-present, unshakable, enduring, and at the same time, expanding. And see, when it's King Jesus leading us into battle, nothing can indeed shake us. Nothing can stop the expansion of His kingdom because it's His. And that means you circle back to verse 1. Why can He build a church that's enduring and expanding? Well, it's because the Lord Jesus is the same God who laid out the heavens and the earth, and the same God who breathed life into Adam's lungs. So that is what God will do with us, what God will do for us, rather, what God will do for us. And then in verses uh, 10, starting in verse 10, looking through verse 14, this this is what God will do in us. 
So what God will do with us, He will make us an ever-enduring and expanding kingdom. What God will do in us is He will convert His people. That's what He talks about there in verses 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And so what he's saying here is, in Old Testament terms, I am going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Joel 2. I am going to give them a spirit, a new spirit. Jeremiah 31. This is the promise of heaven that God in His grace and mercy will pour out His Spirit upon us. And it's not until the Lord pours out His Spirit that we have hearts that are new and able to turn from our sin and turn towards Christ. It's the Spirit that enables our salvation. That's where He talks about grace. But if we were to look in the original Hebrew, you'll actually notice that a Spirit of grace and a Spirit for pleas of mercy... It has the same root. And, and what, what is Zechariah trying to get to under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here? He's trying to say the same Spirit that incites within us an acknowledgement of our sins and a turning towards Christ is actually the same Spirit that then drives our prayer life. Our pleadings for mercy, it says. And, and we know, right, that that is... Romans 8 being prophesied. That we do not have a spirit of fear that we might shrink back in shame, but we have a a spirit of adoption where we can come before the Father in heaven and call Him Abba, our Heavenly Father. And so we have to to look at the, the the key picture here is the outpouring of the Spirit that causes us to believe that drives our prayer life, our pleas for mercy, so that, notice that conjunction there, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Now remember, this is God himself speaking to his people. In verse 1, thus declares the Lord. And so when, when he says here, in verse 10, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. The picture before us is the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus. It's the picture, the prophesying of of Jesus hanging upon the cross and the Roman centurion taking the spear and piercing him in the side and the blood and the water flowing out. Actually, this text is referenced in God. In John's Gospel, as he talks about the death of our Lord. And and what's being said here is they'll look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Now, initially, you would think that Zechariah is talking about a a heartbrokenness, that, that this is our Lord who has died. This is our Lord who has put himself under the wrath of God and has put himself under the false accusations and murderous attempts and finally its culmination in his death on the cross of the Roman Empire and the Jewish religious establishment. Our hearts are breaking. But that's not what Zechariah is talking about here. Remember, he's connecting the outpouring of the Spirit 
with the looking upon Christ upon, on the cross. We're seeing the Lamb who was slain. And what Zachariah is concerned with here is our response to the crucifixion. And we see a response, a proper spirit-filled response to the crucifixion in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter's Pentecost sermon, he begins to say, you are the one who is guilty of crucifying the Lord and Savior Jesus. Yes, it was the predetermined plan of God, but you did it. And you're guilty. And you need to repent and believe. And what is their response? How do I do it? How do I do that? Because what I've realized is, Peter, you're right. I'm guilty. And then he says, if you will repent and if you will believe, you can be proclaimed innocent even though you're the one that nailed him to the tree. And actually, remember, Zechariah speaks of us today is our response, that same response of the people in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday. Because what we should see here is this mourning over Jesus is not just a heartbrokenness because, oh, here's our Lord who's died. No, it's my sin put Him there. My sin put Him on the cross. I am guilty of crucifying God in the flesh. I am the one. I am the reason in which His side was pierced. Therefore, what must I do to be saved? And the promise is, that response is Spirit-filled and you must repent and believe. It's the free offer of the Gospel. You know, we sing that hymn now, that, that new hymn in our hymn books, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Think about this line. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Is that your response when you think of the crucifixion? If it is, understand that that is only a spirit-wrought response. That is not a response in and of our natural self because what the Lord has promised is for my people I will fill them with my spirit and they will respond to the crucifixion not in some just sort of heartbrokenness but in a I am guilty of this and what must I do to be saved? The free offer of the gospel. Repent and believe. Well then we must look at the rest of our text in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 13, very quickly. Here is what uh, Jesus will do to us. So, with us, he will make us an enduring and expanding kingdom. With us, or in us, rather, he will convert us. He will change our hearts by his spirit. And then, to us, he will actually cleanse us. That's what 13, 1 through 6 is all about. He will cleanse us. He will sanctify us. And this comes before us in, in two ways. First is individually. If you look at verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It's that idea of every person who will come to Christ can be cleansed of their sins. The free offer of the gospel 
promises salvation to each and every person who will believe. And the way in which Zechariah writes here is all these Old Testament water purification rituals, but the message is so clean or or, or so clear to us that, that through the fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we can be cleansed from our sin and uncleanness. And so, the, the thing that you need to note is that you can't do it on your own. You cannot cleanse yourself by your own ability. You cannot reason yourself to a right standing with God. There is no other way of salvation but the fountain that has been opened to cleanse sin. That's the individual aspect. But the corporate aspect of this is in verses 2 through 6. Because the cleansing doesn't just deal with us as individuals, it actually deals with us as a church. See, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, not only converts us, but He sanctifies us. Not only justifies us, but He sanctifies us. And that's what all this language in verses 2-6 through is all about. Because the Lord just, just doesn't cleanse individuals from their idolatry, from their sins, from their uncleanness. No, he actually says, I am going to purify my church. And so in my church, idols must go. False teachers must go. When the Lord begins to renew and revive his church, all of a sudden, in the church, there is a zero-tolerance policy for idolatry and false teachers. You You don't know how hard it was for me not to read this text this morning as we were thinking about this. When Paul was saying in Titus chapter 3, you give them one chance and you give them two chances, and then after that, reject them. Send them out. Talking about the same principles of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 18. That same message is being given here. In a corporate mentality, in a church mentality, the church, as it's being cleansed, actually, what John McCoy says, the great Scottish commentator he says now the church becomes a hostile environment for false teachers and for false teaching the church becomes a hostile environment for false teachers and false teaching and this is actually how hostile it gets look at the way in which it writes about in verse 3 and if anyone again prophesies it's talking about these false prophets these false teachers His father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Even daddy and mama, when they belong to the household of faith, cannot stand for a false teacher or a false teaching to exist within the church of Christ. What John McKay or McCoy continues on to say, he says, the church of Christ is a people who are blessed with the knowledge of their spiritual cleansing. And it's intense, but it's also absolute. And that intense and absolute loyalty to the Lord ensures that there is nothing in their land that is inconsistent with the acknowledgement of Him as their covenant king. You see what Zechariah is prophesying about here is the new Jerusalem of which is said, 
Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who ever does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the church, you might say, is, is under reconstruction, if you will. And, and what we're becoming as we're being sanctified, not only as individuals, but as a corporate body of believers, is this kingdom of Christ where nothing impure will ever enter into it. That's why Paul writes so pointedly in Titus chapter 2. That's why Zechariah speaks so pointedly here as he prophesies about idolatry being cut off from the church of Christ. Yes, it's hard, but what we are becoming is something that is pure and blameless, a bride that is able and worthy to be be presented to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we must understand something. That these pointed words against false teachers and false teaching is actually a very gracious thing that our Lord is doing. He's cleansing us. He's casting away idolatry and false belief in us. But also He's doing it within the church so that, so that our eyes can be ever focused upon our King, King Jesus And so as He is working in us, both individually and corporately, we long for the day that we will be a completed work, that the church will be a completed work, and Christ will reign supreme over us all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your Word, Lord, and we pray that we would... Uh, be a people so encouraged by the gracious aspects of your care. Not only are you making us as the church of Christ uh, an immovable and ever-expanding kingdom, but you are doing it through the Spirit at work in us, converting us and justifying us, but also sanctifying us and cleansing us. And so, Father, may we uh, remember that you are at work always. May we labor being full of the Spirit for the good of the kingdom of Christ. And may we always be ever looking for the King to consummate His kingdom forever and ever. May we be found ready. In Christ's name, amen.